turn this microphone on. I'm going to use this one for now. I'll use this one later so there's no feedback. Okay? Uh, I'm going to call my mom here in just a minute. And uh, each week during this series, we're going to start with my mom telling a story about how she came home from work and caught me uh, doing stuff that I shouldn't. So my mom, uh, go ahead and skip forward. Go ahead and skip forward a couple screens, if you could. I'll do it. Never mind. Okay, that's my mom right there. So I'm calling her now. Hold on. Hey, mom, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay. Um, hey, mom, say hi to the church. And I'm not going to take a whole lot of time to this, but I love you. I'll say that now right away so you don't think I forgot. Um, but uh, I'm going to put the microphone to the phone, and you're going to tell the story, I guess, about the, the chicken pot pie. Is that what you're going to tell the story about today? I am. Okay, mom, uh, say hi to the church, and uh, Laura, your daughter-in-law is here too, so you can say hi to her if you want, and go ahead and go with the story. Okay, I love you. Good morning, everyone. I'm Joey's mom, and I said Joey because that's what we call him, and I want to say a special good morning to sweet Laura. And I do apologize in advance because I went, I'm at church. We just finished our service, and I came into the parlor it's a little sitting room and closed the door. And too late, I noticed that there's another door from this parlor that goes into the ladies' restroom. So if you hear any toilet flushing, I do apologize for that. <laughs> so I want to tell you that, um, and I preface this by, you know, Joey is a wonderful person. We love him dearly. And he's done a lot more good in his life than the, than the uh, trials we had in his youth. But I want, I want to tell you today about one of those trials. When I came home from work one day, I walked in the door and I smelled like something had been burning. And I thought, okay, that's not all bad because the house is still standing because I just walked in the door. It's not burning down. So then I went into the kitchen and it was a stronger smell in the kitchen and lo and behold, there was a toaster oven where my son had decided that he wanted to cook a pot pie. But he did not want to wait for a pot pie to cook for an hour, 45 minutes. So he thought it best to put it on top brown. And I think you all probably know what happens when you put top brown on in a toaster oven. It caught fire. And it was so hot that it also shattered the glass in the toaster oven. So Joey, as is normal for him, is trying to, you know, decide what to do and how to cover this up a little bit. So Joey decides that if he takes all the glass out of the shattered window of the toaster oven, that it wouldn't be noticed right away. So Joey took all the glass out of the toaster oven so it would just be an open, clear space, thinking it would be glass. But... Being his mom, I noticed it right away, and being his mom, even though I loved him, I was not happy that day, and I was a little upset with him, so uh, I'll let him tell you the rest of the story. Hey, Mom, thank you very much, and we'll talk to you. I'll talk to you before next week, but we'll talk to you next week here in church, too, okay? Okay, love you. Love you, too. Bye. All right, that's my mom. Yeah, she's funny. Uh, now... Let me explain to you why I shared that story. I'm going to turn this microphone on right here. 
Let me explain to you why I share that story. And each week we're going to have another one and they get better and better. Trust me, the one in the last week is going to be like, whoa, Joe, you did that and you're still a pastor. But um, for years, I kind of equated my, my thoughts about the return of Jesus to how I looked at how my mom would return home from work. In the summer, when I'd be home all by myself. You see, there was a list of rules that I was given when I stayed at home by myself in the summer. And those list of rules were pretty succinct. They were pretty detailed and there was no ambiguity. But really how I translated the rules was, don't get caught breaking these rules. And so many times I was nervous when my mom pulled up thinking, oh my word, did I cover up all my tracks? Did I make sure that I didn't, you know? And so the whole time as she's driving up, it seemed like the day went by in like, you know, eight hours that she was away at work in the summer went by like there were 30 minutes. But that time she came in the driveway, from the end of the driveway to the, to the garage, it seemed like four hours. You know, I was afraid and I was scared and, and I thought my mom is coming back and I'm not ready. And fear would grip my heart as my mother would come in and find things I'd done wrong and, and recompense her motherly wrath upon my head. And so that's the idea of we had, that we're going to go through this series. It's comparing my mother and my fear that I had of my mom coming home from work, not because she was a bad person. She was a, she's a very good person. But I was, you know, not always the epitome of manhood you see before you today. And so you see the pictures of the moms, they get mad. Moms get mad and many times they get mad because it's our fault as kids, right? And so you saw the picture of my mom and my son up there. You heard that story. And what I want to do in the next few weeks is I want to kind of divorce ourselves from the... I'm going to use some harsh words here. I believe that many people have adulterated the theology and the doctrine of the Lord's return and used it for manipulation to heap guilt upon God's children, to make us sit in fear of it. And I understand that there is a component to the Lord's return, that there is some accountability and responsibility, but it has to be mixed with the fact that God is sovereign and God never does a sorry job of saving anyone. And we have to also understand that Scripture teaches us that He prepared good works beforehand that we stumble over. And he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. So you can see that when you really look at the whole of Scripture, the Lord's return should not be something that we're so afraid of. Now let me clarify. I'm not talking, there's a popular theology out there that I don't really hold to, and it's called the rapture. I'm not talking about that. In reality, the theology of the rapture was something, it's a very new theology. It's only about, it's less than 200 years old. It's about 185 years old. And he began in Scotland in this church. Actually, it was a Presbyterian church. And the pastor was preaching that before the Lord returns, a lot of things have to take place. And one of them is people all start receiving the apostolic gifts again. You know, the, 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 the raising of the dead and the healing and the speaking in tongues and all these things have to happen before the Lord returns. And in the process of that, there was a woman in his church um, and she was pretty sick. She was deathly ill, as a matter of fact. And what happened? She was in her house for several days. And what she said when she got better, she said, for several days I drifted in and out of consciousness and I had these visions and dreams for God. And he told me that he's going to come back in two waves. He's going to come back first and call all the Christians away. 
And then come back seven years later, after a really rough time that's in you know, Revelation, she said, and then he's going to start his thousand-year reign. And that was kind of the birthplace of two things. It was the birthplace of the modern Pentecostal movement. And it was also the birthplace of the theology that we call dispensationalism. And so I'm not talking about that aspect of the Lord's return. I'm talking about the theology of the Lord's return that was actually taught for 18 centuries by the church. The scripture, where the scripture teaches the Lord returns once. Not like a head fake and then comes back again. Okay? He returns once in glory, in victory, in power, and in completion of his work of redemption in our lives and, by the way, his work of redemption of the physical earth. So I want to make sure you understand that's the Lord's return that I'm talking about, the biggie. But you see, there's two applications of the Lord's return. There are those who are God's children. We have one application of how the Lord's return should affect us. And there are those who are not in Christ. And their application of how the Lord's return affects them is different. I'm going to be focusing the next four weeks on just the part about how we, as God's children, should react and respond and live in reality of the Lord's return. So I'm going to read a passage to you. Uh, again, I want to encourage you. We're going to start trying to encourage you guys to use your smartphones more to help with the scripture and stuff. I'm going to have it on the screen, but if you have a Bible app, feel free to pull it up uh, on your Android or your iPhone. We will not judge you until you play Angry Birds. Do not play Angry Birds during my sermon because then the Lord's return really will be a problem for you. So, <clears throat> All right, Romans 8. So then, my brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Daddy, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Think about this now. We're talking about the Lord's return. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's the aspect of the Lord's return. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now that's quite a treatise, isn't it? Paul takes us through several very deep theologies. The theology of adoption. The theology, theology of redemption. The theology of glorification. The theology of the resurrection and the redemption of our physical bodies. The theology of the restoration of the earth. There are a ton of things in there that we could write books about. That's how amazing the Lord's return is. So let's go through and break down. I'm going to start in verse 18, and I'm going to break down this passage for you in some simple points. And at the end, I think we're going to give you a picture of the Lord's return that could change your whole perspective and set you up emotionally for how we can respond to this theology of Christ's return. The first one is no fear. In verses 12 to 15, he talks about that, right? He says he's not giving us the uh, spirit of slavery or fear. And in other places in Paul's letter, he talks about we're not under bondage to fear. We no longer live in fear. We no longer live in judgment. We no longer live at odds with God. We have been reconciled. We have been redeemed. We have been restored. We have been connected. Now let me ask you, why would Paul go through all these books in the New Testament to keep stressing how powerful our redemption is only to tell us to be very afraid of the Lord's return? Doesn't seem to make sense. Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry Abba, which is kind of Hebrew for Daddy. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. What power is he talking about? What he said in the passage we read? That the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God. What does that mean? It's very evident that we are children of God by how the Spirit and our spirit mesh together and our process of sanctification is undeniable. See, that's what we embrace about the sovereignty of God. He's not just sovereign in our salvation. He's sovereign in our sanctification. He's sovereign in our preparation. He's sovereign in our justification. He's sovereign in our progression. He's not just sovereign for just a split second when we become a child of God. He's sovereign for all of it. He gets the credit for every last drop of righteousness. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The next point, dad is coming soon. We're going to talk some more about this in a little bit. But let me read this to you. In verses 14 to 17, I just want to read it again. For we are all led by the Spirit of God. We are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Daddy. See, the preparation for the Lord's return in our life, the start of it was done by Jesus, and the Holy Spirit continues that preparation process. So we can look at it as our dad coming to get us out of this mess. Why do I call it a mess? 
And this next statement is not meant to be political. I'm all for, you know, uh, good environmentalist policies and green energy and everything. But you know what? Right now sucks, later will rock, and green energy isn't the answer. Let me explain what I mean. In verse 18, it talks about the earth is groaning, right? It's groaning in pain. It's, it's subjected to futility so it can endure this process of salvation and sanctification that the Lord has laid out for us. And right now, what Paul says is, I don't even want to compare the current sufferings to the glory that will be revealed to us. He said there's no comparison. In verse 18, he says that. There is no comparison. What is he saying? Right now, it kind of sucks. Later, it is going to rock. And when it comes to the next point that I'm making about green energy, verse 19 to 22, what it says is this. The earth is groaning, it's in pain, and all these things. Yes, we should do what we can to help the earth, but in reality, that's not going to fix what's wrong with the earth. It's the redemption of the physical earth. When Christ completes his work and he comes back and restores everything, including our physical bodies. Right now, we enjoy our spiritual redemption. But when the Lord returns, we enjoy our physical redemption, as does the earth. And the scripture says the earth is groaning in pain for this. And it says we are groaning for this. We are longing for this. We can't fix what ails the planet. We can try to head off some of the problems that we cause. Try to, you know, maybe stave off some sort of difficulties here and there and, and figure out different ways to be better stewards of what God has given us. But in the end, man can't fix what's wrong with the earth. Man caused it, don't get me wrong. The scripture is very clear that the curse of sin has wreaked havoc. We talked about that in one of our series recently, right? Why bad stuff happens. But in reality, we can't fix what ails the planet. Only the return of Jesus can. Which brings me to our next point. It's this endless pursuit of satisfaction versus what we are really looking for. Verses 24 and 25, I'm just going to read them to you real quick. It says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We are in this endless pursuit of comfort and safety and fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and happiness. And every once in a while, we grab a few seconds of it, right? Oh, man, this is the life. You know, I'm on a beach with my spouse and the wine is good and the sunset. Oh, look at the dolphin. Uh oh, here comes a storm. Isn't that what life is? I remember about three weeks, three, four weeks ago, I was out riding my bike. I do a long bike ride on Saturdays. It kind of prepares my day for the, you know, for, for the sermon and some other things. And I was just thinking through, man, things are going pretty good here right now in life. You know, I'm enjoying the garden and I'm enjoying my day job. I'm enjoying nightlife. And, and then there was an article in the paper about nightlife losing its building. And that was bad. And then, you know, I had some other problems going on with my day job. And that was bad. And and then I got Bruce really angry about something, and that was bad. And all of a sudden, this great life that I had just kind of came crashing down around me, you know? Guys, I'm going to tell you something. 
The thing we're really looking for, and some of us don't even realize it, is that feeling of joy and elation that we will have when Jesus returns. Because if we really knew, and Paul says this in verse 24 and 25, if we really knew what it was going to be like, we'd have a hard time waiting. And what he says is, look, if you've seen it, why would you hope for it? But if you haven't seen it, you hope for it and you wait for it patiently. Do you understand? If we knew all the aspects of what the Lord's return is going to do for us, we would not be willing to live the rest of our life here on earth as it is. Why would I want to wait for that? And so some ways, it's a good thing that the Lord's return is so mysterious. Because if we knew all the components of it and what it's going to do, we would never want to sit here another second. I promise you. Guys, for years, bad theology has used the return of Jesus for predominantly a tool for fear and for guilt, for something to stir the children of God to action. And certainly it's true that the Lord's return should stir us to action, but not out of fear, not out of this fake pseudo-spiritual anxiety that they try to use to, 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 to weight us down, but it should stir us to action out of anticipation, out of excitement, out of joy. So what sort of emotion, what sort of anticipation should a biblical understanding of the return of Jesus give to us, children of God, children of Heavenly Dad? See, the best way for me to give you a picture of how we should interact and think about the Lord's return, I've been thinking through this, right? And it hit me Saturday as I was home putting up the, the message and I said, man, this is it. Watch these uh, videos. 